0: Okay, we're gonna get started. I'm Rob Penzer, I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center, welcome. Uh, I want to make some announcements about upcoming programs before I introduce today's guests. On Saturday, April 12th, physicists Harold Atmansbacher and Edgar Chiari and scientist-philosopher Farzad Mahushin join Jungian analysts Joseph Cambray and Beverly Zabriskie in an exploration of synchronicity on the spectrum of mind and matter. On April 26th, join us for Women and Science for Stemming the Tide of Gender-Based Inequity, and on May 17th, Women and the Work World. Also watch for announcements for this year's Helix Center benefit to be held on May 4th at Ginny's Supper Club at the Red Rooster. And Now for today's introductions. Chip Gagnon is Associate Professor of Politics at Ithaca College, if you could raise your hand as I announce you and a long-time visiting scholar at Cornell University's Judith Repi Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies. He received his PhD in political science with a focus on international relations from Columbia University, where he also received certificates in the Soviet Russian Studies and Eastern European Studies. He is author of numerous articles as well as The Myth of Ethnic War, Serbia and Croatia in the 1990s, which was the winner of the American Political Science Association's award for best book on European politics and society and co-winner of the Council for European Studies Best First Book Award. More recently, he co-edited a volume, Post-Conflict Studies, an Interdisciplinary Approach, based on a series of workshops he organized at Cornell. His research is focused on violence that is framed as ethnic, and in particular, the ways in which such violence is often the result of an elite strategy of demobilization. A related research interest is the ways in which elites construct threatening images of the outside world as a domestic political resource. Another research project focuses on the concept of religious missionary work as a way to understand democracy promotion and other secular forms of international intervention, focusing in particular on the Balkans. Leah Greenfeld is university professor and professor of sociology, political science, and anthropology, Boston University, and visiting adjunct professor at Lyon University. She is the author, among other publications, of Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity, The Spirit of Capitalism, Nationalism and Economic Growth, and Mind, Modernity and Madness, the Impact of Culture on Human Experience. These form a trilogy. The latest volume, focusing on the existential experiences of modernity, offers a novel interpretation and a causal explanation of schizophrenia and manic depressive illness. Professor Greenfeld held the positions of assistant, as well as John L. Loeb, Associate Professor of Social Sciences at Harvard University from 1985 until 1994, when she joined Boston University in her current appointment. She has also held visiting positions at RPI, MIT, and the Ecole des Hautes Etudes en Sciences Sociales in Paris, and has been a recipient of the UAB Ireland Distinguished Visiting Scholar Award, fellowships from the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, New Jersey, the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars in Washington, D.C., the Institute for Advanced Studies in Jerusalem, and grants from Mellon, Olin, Earhart, and the National Council for Soviet and Eastern European Research, and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In 2004, she delivered the Gellner Lecture at the London School of Economics on the the subject of Nationalism and the Mind, launching the research connecting her previous work on modern culture to a new perspective on mental illness, (coughs) excuse me, and in 2011, the Tom Nairn Lecture at the Globalism Research Center, RMIT in Melbourne. Elise Giuliano is a political scientist at Columbia University where she teaches courses on secession and nationalism, Russian politics, and international relations. She's the academic advisor to graduate students at Columbia's Harriman Institute for Russian, Eurasian, and East European studies. Professor Giuliano's research focuses on the intersection of politics and identity. Her book, Constructing Grievance, Ethnic Nationalism in Russia's Republics, examines why some mass populations in Russia's ethnic republics supported nationalist separation while others remained quiescent. In 2012, the book won the ENMISA Book Award of the International Studies Association for the best book published over the past two years in the study of international politics of ethnicity, nationalism, or migration. Professor Giuliano is currently researching the politics of blame following natural and man-made disasters in Russia. After working as a consultant in Moscow and Novogrod for USAID on a privatization project in the 1990s, she conducted field research in Tatarstan, Russia, as a Fulbright-Hayes scholar. Professor Giuliano has taught at the University of Miami and Barnard College, and she currently serves on the advisory board for the Association of the Study of Nationalities and is a member of the program on new approaches to research and security in Eurasia. Professor Giuliano has a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University, the University of Notre Dame, and Columbia she received a PhD in political science and an MA in international relations from the University of Chicago and a BA in Russian studies from the University of Pennsylvania. Liora Khan is founder and president of Proof Media for Social Justice. She works on global projects with Amnesty International and the United Nations. Her 2007 book Darfur 20 Years of War and Genocide has won several awards and an exhibition of this work is traveling in the US under the auspices of the Holocaust Museum of Houston. Her book Child Soldiers published in November 2008, features an introductory essay by Luis Moreno Ocampo, chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Court. She curated an exhibition on child soldiers in collaboration with the UN's Office on Children and Armed Conflict. It has traveled to Rome, New York, Bonn, Vienna, Mexico City, as well as the United States. Ms. Kahn's film credits include Renee and I, an award-winning documentary about the life of an extraordinary woman who was experimented on by Joseph Mengele during the Holocaust. She also co-produced Original Intent, a documentary that explores the judicial philosophy promoted by President George W. Bush and the Supreme Court Justices Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas. She was Director of Photography at Workman Publishing and Corbus, as well as working at the New York Times Magazine, Time Magazine, and numerous other publications. She has been a fellow in the Genocide Studies program at Yale University, where she conducts research on rescuers and rescuing behavior. She lectures and teaches widely on topics in human rights and photography and transitional justice. She is a Fulbright senior specialist and recently taught at University of Haifa, and is fellow at the Adrian de Rothschild Columbia University and Cambridge University for social entrepreneurs that involve starting a network between Jews and Muslims. Ms. Khan's recent work has taken to Rwanda, Cambodia, and Bosnia, where she has researched and interviewed rescuers from these genocides. <clears throat> An exhibition comprised of photos and texts of these interviews is now traveling in Rwanda, Bosnia, and Cambodia, as well as the United States, sponsored by the U.S. State Department. She has developed a worldwide project on rape and transitional justice with Partners, Trial, and UNFPA. Nathan Schanberg is a Wallerstein Research Fellow in Psychoanalysis of the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis on the faculty at New York Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, and formerly Freud Professor of Psychoanalysis at the Hebrew University. He is the author or editor of four books and one novella, Educating the Emotions on Bruno Bettelheim's Ideas, Lives Across Time with Henry Massey, Reluctant Warriors, the Maturation and Inner Lives of Elite Israeli Soldiers, and Sheba and Solomon's Return, Ethiopian Children in Israel, which was a foundational study for our uh, recent uh, roundtable on that subject. He studied at the University of Chicago College and Medical School, where his teachers included Bruno Bettelheim and Saul Bellow. He graduated from the St. Louis <coughs> Psychoanalytic Institute, and he is training analyst of the Israel Psychoanalytic Society and IPA. And I think most of you know Dr. Edward Nersessian, director of and founder of the Helix Center. So we'll begin.
1: So I have a question. What do, what do we mean by fanaticism?
2: I had the same question.
1: Because I personally find it a kind of problematic term. But
2: mm-hmm. I can't
1: hear you. So what do I said, what do we mean by fanaticism? Uh, I personally find it a kind of problematic term.
3: Well, one of the best ways of answering this question is um, what did people who invented the word meant by fanaticism? Of course, now we mean all sorts of things. But it is interesting that uh, the word only appears in the English language in the 16th century, uh, at which time it basically um, refers to um, a sort of um, abnormal behavior that, um, that characterizes one as mad. The word mad also appears only in and the word madness, also appear only in the 16th century. And specifically, it refers to um, being mad as a result of intervention of uh, bad uh, spirits, demons. But um, there was actually a mental disease at that time that was uh, um, diagnosed as um, a result of the intervention of demons. (coughs) But what is much more interesting is that um, in uh, the middle of the 17th century, after the Puritan Rebellion, and already after nationalism was uh, firmly established in England, the word fanaticism is used specifically for religious mania, mania, precisely in the sense in which we understand it now in psychiatry, and for political enthusiasm, which which goes overboard. And it is in this sense of uh, unreasonable enthusiasm for political causes or religious causes that we mostly understand uh, fanaticism now. Now the uh, connection between the word itself and the phenomenon that is observed uh, in the 16th and 17th century to begin with and nationalism, which also is something that emerges in the 16th century in England is therefore very clear. So fanaticism comes into our life, not with any identity. There are always lots of identities, and uh, human beings do not live without an identity. But it comes into our life very specifically with national identity. And the question therefore becomes, what is it in nationalism that provokes fanaticism?
4: I want to take some, two different perspectives as I was asked to think about this. One is a developmental perspective. When do people have the capacity to become fanatical or nationalistic? Generally speaking, it's sometime in adolescence, or late adolescence and later. We don't usually call six-year-olds or nine-year-olds fanatical. They can be preoccupied with the uh, New York Yankees, but we don't call them fanatical in that sense. So something happens around late adolescence. I want to suggest, and that brings us closer to issues of identity in Erickson's work on that. So that's one thing to I want to raise. The other is when I was asked again to talk about this, I, the, I thought of both Hannah Arendt's opening to her book on Eichmann in Jerusalem, and Subtitle of this about his experience in the concentration as kind of the other side of what we might call. If we don't know what fanaticism is yet, we may clarify that in this meeting. What's the other side of fanaticism in the 20th, 21st century? So Eichmann says in the beginning of her book, when cliches and stock phrases begin replacing critical thinking, it's a danger to society. That was one of her major, I think, lessons from watching the uh, Eichmann trial. People will think uh, critically, let's say, in a certain way, and then start not thinking critically and using stock phrases and cliches. And a compliment to that, again, Arendt is a political philosopher, but a compliment to that is Bettelheim's comment. The subtitle of his book, The Informed Heart, which describes his experience in in Dachau and and experience of others later on in concentration camp, is that the danger, he thought, and great dark genius of the Nazi invention was to use modern technologies of social communication, mass communication, um, to influence larger groups in a certain way. And the challenge, he thought, was not to think of Nazism as a unique experience, but one that can be repeated, number one. And number two, he said the challenge in the 20th century and today is the subtitle of his book, how do we develop and maintain autonomy in a mass age? And by autonomy, he means the old Greek definition, self-rule. As opposed to, I want to suggest, fanaticism might be other ruled, as of just an initial uh,
5: definition. So I, I can pick up a little bit on that because the work that I do with rescuers is about how you how they identify staying with the original with the original group identity instead of going and become, you know, perpetrators and fanatics. Those are questions that aren't asked that often because we usually think of a group as, you know, that all the Germans became, you know, perpetrators or all the Hutus became perpetrators. So the questions I ask and then I'm very interested in is more, why do those people do, you, why do the Hutus or why do, why are there good Germans and how they resist being swept up into a fanatical kind of identity? And and I find that, you know, a challenge. To, to think about, but it's a question that, I'm, that I work on. And I think it's important, because we do study a lot about the fanaticism. We don't study a lot about you know, resisting it.
4: But what if I were to say that to
5: resist prejudice,
4: one needs to be fanatical, that Mother Teresa is a fanatic about what she did? So this is
5: provocative. No, I think what you said about the critical thinking is really important. I think if, you, if you're a critical thinker, really a critical thinker, you won't give in to the fanaticism. And I think you know, that's, that's a really important point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Because a lot of these authoritarian um, c- countries and, and you know, societies don't install critical thinking. And you've studied all those. I mean, you've studied the Balkans and, and, and the societies that don't encourage Independent critical thinking, and I think that's where the danger comes in to become, you know, a nationalist or a fanaticist that you don't think about what it, you know, means.
2: Well, uh, it might be useful to define some terms at this point, just because probably some people around this table are using the term nationalism in different ways. Uh, And also, just on the point of fanaticism or fanatic as a word, nobody's mentioned just a common. Usage of the term in everyday life, and it seems to me that the way we use it in everyday life is just to talk about people we disagree with or ideas we find reprehensible, uh, whereas everyone here is using it in a more academic or specific sense. Um, but it can be hard to, you know, disentangle uh, these days. The term fanatic is often used to apply to, or it follows the word Muslim, and it usually means people who engage in. Violence or terrorism to achieve their goals. So um, already we have different ways of using the term fanatic and different ways of using the term nationalism. So maybe it would be useful for people to uh, each of us to try to talk about what we mean by nationalism. The way I think um, academics who study nationalism in a specific time and place is very different than common place understanding of nationalism, which often refers to Nazism or to uh, uh, or some type of more extreme behavior.
3: Well, um, let let me try and uh, do that. Even Mm -hmm. though I am an academic, uh, a fanatical academic, one could say by using fanaticism in the way that you propose. Uh, But um, I'm trying actually to study uh, those phenomena precisely in the sense in which they um, are used by people, um, and uh, even if those people who use them do not define them uh, explicitly to themselves, nevertheless, when forced to define those terms, um, and I sometimes force my students, for example, to try and define the terms they constantly use, they would define it in those very ways. So it is in fact very important to define um, nationalism and fanaticism. And nationalism, contrary to the ways in which it's very often bandied around uh, by the media, nationalism refers <coughs> to uh, our contemporary all of our contemporary view of reality. In my classes I very often ask students, and it is a very good exercise, ask students in the beginning of the classes to give me a a pictogram that is a very, very short telegraphic drawing of the world in which they live. It is amazing. American students, students in Europe, students in Africa, students everywhere basically come with the same drawing. And this drawing reflects the essence of nationalism because our contemporary world is defined by nationalism. Nationalism is the cultural framework of contemporary world as we live in it. And what is this drawing and what is this world? We see the world, unlike people in other um, types of societies and in other historical periods, we see the world as, first of all, this world, this globe, the world of our empirical experiences the world of living people, this earth, in distinction to religious people who see this earth, this world of the living people, only as a very, very small piece of a grand, huge world, most of which is transcendental. And we see this world as the source of all law of all truth and of all meaning, while they, those other people, see the grand transcendental world with God or gods in it as the source of all meaning, all law, and all truth. In addition, we, in contemporary people, modern people, defined by nationalism, see society as based on two principles, on the principle of popular sovereignty and on the principle of the fundamental (coughs) equality of membership in the nation. And we see the world as divided into nations. Nation is defined precisely as a sovereign community of equals. Now clearly the Iranian nation, a sovereign Iranian community of equals would be very different from the American nation, a sovereign American community of equals. Nevertheless, as sovereign communities of equals, they're both national societies and secular societies. Because even though religion plays very important part in both, in different ways, but in both, because we are focused on this world. When the individual, in monotheistic religions in particular, when the individual is determined religiously and sees the world as a religious universe, grand transcendental universe, in which this earth is only a tiny part then, the most important things for this individual, be he a Muslim, a Jew, or a Christian, would be his or her soul's salvation and eternal life after death. What is happening in the few years before death is really not that important. For us, the modern people based on nationalism, the only important thing is what happens in this life. We really do not care at all. Even those of us who consider ourselves religious, we do really do not care at all about what happens after death, and we do not care at all about our meeting with our maker and what he has to think about our actions here. That is why we are all, Muslims, Christians, doesn't matter, are so tremendously politically activist in our lives. Such activism was simply impossible in the different religious conception of the world. So nationalism, basically, it's this new perspective on the reality that first emerges in England in the 16th century and then uh, spreads through the entire world. More or less now it is spreading through the entire world. And it brings with it some wonderful things, wonderful things. It brings with it, first of all, democracy. It also brings with it economy oriented towards growth. And with this much greater wealth, it also brings with it science. Science which was impossible when we were religiously oriented because the empirical knowledge about this world was of no importance. May for I
6: interrupt us. you a second because I'm a little bit still stuck with your original comment and I can't get it out of my mind. What? <laughs> You were objecting, or you were saying you have a problem with the term. So maybe you
1: often linked to nationalism. And the way nationalism is used generally is somewhat different than what Leah is saying. It's more attachment to a nation defined in ethno-linguistic terms, attachment to a territory, um, which is narrower than the definition that that you're giving. Um, And the problem I have with the term fanaticism is it's almost too easy. Well, these people are crazy. We don't have to understand, well, what's going on with them? Why are they acting this way? The other thing is, it tends to lump people into groups. So, for example, I start my book out with, uh, in Serbia, uh, in the media, which was controlled by the the government, you know, the images that you saw through the 80s and then the early 90s were, were terrible. They were just, Serbs are being slaughtered in Croatia, women and children, Serbs are victims, et cetera, et cetera, and you would expect... That that would create sort of the solidarity and a sense of high sense of groupness among Serbs, who would then. But in fact, what happened is when the army called, when the when the government called up young men for the draft um, in Belgrade, the capital city, 80 to 90 percent of them refused to go. They went into hiding or left the country. In the country as a whole, it was 50 percent. And the reason it was lower in the country as a whole is people live in villages, and it's not quite as easy to get away because of the social networks. So that tells us something else is going on. This is not fanaticism. This is something that the government is trying to get people to do. They're using images and trying to use fear and emotion to get people to do things, but it wasn't really working. Now, obviously, some people did go to the front, and you know, the, the question of why they did that uh, is a valid one. But I start with the, the, the anecdote about so many young men refusing to fight, because it really puts into question a lot of the images we have about conflicts like the ones we saw in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, in other places as well. But does
6: that does that Could, go along with what? Well,
5: Sorry. Can I ask you a question about that? Sure. How does that relate to the um, the paramilitaries in Bosnia? I mean, did those Im- do you think those images um, created a more national um, identity of the ones that were that were fighting in Bosnia?
1: Well, the paramilitaries that were sent into Bosnia from Serbia and, and from Croatia during that phase of the war yeah. were. You know, in every society, you have groups of guys who are just into that, you know, that kind of violence and killing.
7: Was what, was the, what
1: were they motivated by? Yeah. Uh, I don't, my, maybe some of them, but a lot of it wasn't. It was just the thrill of being a hero, wanting to have action in your life.
4: Schill's addressed that with uh, the German soldiers, though. What motivated them in their study? In the, when they were asked to study the captured German soldiers, young mm-hmm. men, and they knew they were losing. This was in 45, 44, I think. And Schils and Janowitz were clever enough to say, how come these guys are fighting so hard still? And what they found when they interviewed, if I remember correctly, what they found was the major motivation was not for Germany, not for Adolf Hitler. It was their buddies in their units. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is what I found in studying the Israeli soldiers, mm-hmm. not to that degree, to a great degree, those I studied soldiers in elite units. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they, I remember one of them said to me, the first year of his training, he said, he would say, I will fight for my brothers, I will die for my brothers. He said he didn't feel it until the end of the year. And then he realized he really and would. Was
1: a, right. And this is regular soldiers, but yeah. you asked me about the paramilitaries, which were not regular soldiers. These were groups um, who did a lot of criminal, a lot, a lot of the war crimes were were done by, the, by paramilitary groups. Yeah. They were associated with some of, the, some of the political parties. But the point is, yes, they did awful things, but they were a very small minority of, of the guys who were potentially going to go fight in, in the war from Serbia. Now, if you're in Bosnia itself, you're in a different situation. The war is happening in your country. Uh, and to understand that, and I won't go into great detail now, but there was a long campaign to create a climate of fear. Um, and, and even in that, people had to be forced not everyone. Obviously, there were small numbers of people who were really into it, but people had to be forced to sort of separate. And the violence was actually a means of separating people who had been organic communities before. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm talking about this because when we look at a, a war like that, it's easy to say, oh, they're fanatics, they're crazy. But in fact, if you sort of look at sort of a micro level, there's a lot of different things going on. And the problem with the term "fanatics" is it makes it too easy. Oh, they're just—they're all foaming at the mouth. Milosevic is appealing to them as Serbs, but that's not what was happening. Um, and so my problem with the term "fanatics" is that it's sort of—the way it's commonly used—it's mm-hmm. used as sort of the shorthand that means they're just kind of crazy, um, which is not.
6: Well, yeah, such is fanatic about teaching. So. <laughs> that's a little bit. But different. I want to, uh, because you—you were making an, an interesting point, distinguishing the modern us. From the very religious. And how does that play into this issue that they're Uh, describing?
3: Yes, let let me continue. So, um, this is a long story, unfortunately. I'm sorry for taking so much time. But um, nationalism brought to us lots of wonderful things, but it also brought us some absolutely horrible things. And the most terrible things the most terrible problem that nationalism has created, it brought to us schizophrenia and manic depression. (laughs) That is, together with nationalism, there emerged at the very same time in 16th century England, there emerges a new mental disease. We know that this disease is new because out of the very large vocabulary for mental diseases that exist at the time, no word seems to capture it, and new words I invented to capture, and the new words that I invented, are madness and lunacy. But so now that doesn't, you know, sometimes
4: you have new words for old phenomena. So well, if you read in this the, case, the, in let, this let case. me mention the Malleus Maleficorum which was well before the 17th century.
3: I'm talking about 16th century, the beginning of the 16th century. Right. and um, But in the Malleus Maleficorum,
4: which is a medieval text, yes? Yes. They describe what we would today call psychoses, usually schizophrenia. Right. But they don't use those words. They use things about inhabited by the devil or the witches right. and so on. Right. So just because a new word in, is invented doesn't mean right. that it's a new phenomenon. Right.
3: In this case, I'm talking about a new phenomenon because yes, there was psychosis, there was something new that emerged that wasn't like lots of other psychoses, many of which were indeed interpreted as um, as fanaticism, as uh, maleficious demons. Those people were called, among other things, demoniaci. Yes, but what emerges is something completely different. What emerges and what is remarkably uh, striking, it is so striking that not only new words emerge, but a completely new discourse emerges in jurisprudence, in medicine, and in theology. The first hospital, the first hospital in the sense in which we understand a medical establishment for treatment of disease is, is, emerges, and which hospital is that? It is Bedlam the hospital for those madmen. A new legislation emerges, which never existed, which treats only specifically those madmen, not demoniacs, not the other psychotics, but only those. What is so specific about them? What is so, and of course, the entire Elizabethan and then Jacobean literature, including Shakespeare, which is very important, is focused on madness. The four great Shakespeare's tragedy are all focused on madness. It is a new phenomenon. And what is so specific about this phenomenon is that it is seen as an existential experience because it lasts forever. When one first is affected by it, it will not disappear with age, it will not disappear with certain physical conditions. All the other psychoses are related, are either age-related, or have certain other biological conditions affiliated with them. And they end either in death with those other conditions or in cure with those other conditions. Those seem to be those that later were called schizophrenia and manic depressive illness, precisely diseases that until now exist without a known organic basis. They become the base of psychiatry. Now what happens with that and why nationalism? Because they seem to be related very, very tightly the problems with the definition of individual identity that nationalism creates. By defining all the members of the nation as equal, it places the burden for the definition of the individual identity on the person. And for very many, this burden seems to be too much. And indeed, when we analyze schizophrenia and manic depression, we can see how great the self problems are in those diseases. Now, in all the other societies, the individual's position was defined by birth. If one was born a daughter of a shoemaker, it was clear that one would then become the wife of a shoemaker and the mother of shoemakers. And what one is supposed to do in life was absolutely clear. To such details as what kinds of clothes one would wear, what kinds of food one would eat, what kinds of holidays one would celebrate. So, what defined by birth and by God, the place where God has placed you. But now, everyone can be whatever one wants and one has to define oneself. And very often, one feels that one made the wrong choice and experiences problems with oneself, hates oneself. It is from this problem with individual identity Specifically, from the complex of inferiority, that fanaticism emerges. Psychoanalyst,
6: what do you think? Well,
5: can I ask? A question? Uh, yes, a I, I wanted to ask Elise a question because her work is really—I mean—talking about it, it relates to you. The work that you've done and why some nationalists, um, you know, support separatism and why some, you know, the work that you've just been doing—I think that really relates to sort of what Leah's saying, like why some can sort of break away, like me, in my work, and why, and, and especially, of course, what's happening today in Russia and Ukraine. I would love to hear what you have to say about that.
2: Well, I mean, one of the other uh, big questions that was posed to us on this panel is when do members of a group um, <clears throat> or when do people become members of a group? And then when does that group maybe become fanatical is the, the second question. But yeah, I, I think it's really important um, just as it's important to be careful about using the term fanaticism as a way of, of as labeling something we don't understand and labeling a form of violence or willingness to give one's life or take a life um, based on an ideology. That's often the way I think we, common commonplace way that we use fanaticism. Um, for example, we don't really talk about Patrick Henry, um, "Give me liberty or give me death" as a fanatic, or we don't talk about the students who gave their life at Tiananmen Square as fanatics. It's usually something, you know, that has uh, embodies an ideology that we we just don't get or d- don't agree with. Well, do you um, think they are? Hmm? Do you think they are fanatics? <laughs> Well, uh, I guess if we use the term as willingness to die, which seems sort of like a rational behavior, it it can be defined as fanatical. But the problem with that term is that you're saying that person is a believer in an ideology or a member of a group only because they believe in this ideology. And you're not taking into consideration that there can be other motivations for that kind of behavior, even in the case for something that appears to be as extreme as a suicide bomber. Or um, you know, or a member of Al Qaeda who's who's you know part of 9/11. There could be other motivations. Some of them rational. Uh, some of them you know of the kind you describe that soldiers face—that the group-in-group group love or affiliation that motivate people to give their life on behalf of of, of their um, brethren or the people they consider theirs.
4: Can I? I- let me, from a, my perspective as an analyst now, just a couple thoughts. Uh, one is to use a, uh, I'll turn to a developmental perspective, to look at Erickson's work on identity and identity formation. To look at Eric Fromm's <coughs> ideas in his book Escape from Freedom, which I think you, you alluded to, that some people can't tolerate the responsibility that comes with the democratic freedom. In a, and, and he suggests that the, that the challenge for democratic societies is when you have external freedom, then to develop internal freedoms and a sense of responsibility over one's actions. Again, Fromm is talking about something that happens in adolescence, late adolescence uh, in general. But the nature of Erickson's work, when he was the master of writing about identity, a man who never knew who his father was. And when he was in analysis with Anna Freud, said, I have a chance to find out who my father is. And she said, don't. You can't. You're not allowed to. And he didn't and regretted listening to her the rest of his life. Who named himself by his last name, Eric's son, because he didn't know who his father was. So he's a master of identity in a sense, you know. And he talks about the importance of adolescence as a time to begin to assemble, like Legos or something, and concretize and solidify who I think I am, who I belong with or to, and beginning to extend my belonging system from my family to outside family, friends, and peers, groups, and such. That's just one place to start. And then we can look at adolescents and ask them, whom do you consider part of the group, and who's nuts about this? Who goes way overboard? Or I'll give you another example in a moment. But Erickson, even he pointed out that there were cultural differences that surprised him. When he moved to the States, he was impressed and surprised and talked about in his book, Identity and Youth Formation that American youth were more interested in being part of a group than his experience in Europe. His experience. I'm not saying European youth. In Europe as a von der Vogel before he uh, went and joined Anna Freud's kindergarten to teach with Peter blos who was a faculty member here, it was important to be independent and alone and self-ruling and against society. And he comes to America and he finds youth don't value that as much and he's puzzled and I don't think he used the word concern. It was Eric Fromm who was concerned about that. So one place to start is that period. Then another example of cultural difference I'll mention, of you know the issue of fanatical. So when we had the Second Lebanese War, I went up north. I was volunteering as a physician. I was teaching at the university at the time. But I volunteered as a physician because I wanted to meet the soldiers I had interviewed in my study as they came back from Lebanon. That was the way I could do it, was to go up north. And when they came back, and these were guys who were in elite units, they were put into Lebanon, three days, 72 hours, fight, and then pulled out. And they described real disarray as the Israeli government tried to run the war from Tel Aviv. Real disarray, but I won't go into that. What shocked them was in fighting what was called Hezbollah, there were two groups of soldiers they fought. One was a mass of young men running at them, shooting without aiming sacrificing themselves. And behind them were snipers who would use the guys running in front to identify where Israeli soldiers were and pick them off. But my soldiers said they couldn't get their heads around these guys running in front. It didn't didn't feel like a war. It felt like a slaughter to them. And that ran counter to their own identities. So there was a cultural difference. Or when there was a mother of a suicide (coughs) bomber who lived in a village just opposite my apartment in Jerusalem, and her son uh, shoots a bunch of yeshiva boys and is killed. And she drapes her, I could see her house was draped in big Hamas green flags and says, I have, and she points to her seven year old son, I have another one to sacrifice. And my Israeli students said, They don't get this. So,
3: they don't get what?
4: They don't get how a mother could say, oh, "My six-year-old, I have another six-year-old to sacrifice." So She's saying that, publicly, it doesn't matter. No, no Israeli mother I knew would say that That I knew, or was advertised as saying that publicly. That I knew. There may have been some who might have, but none that I knew. My point is that when you ask, you ask the razor question of fanaticism and how do we define it, I'm reminded of when the Supreme Court, nine justices, all male at the time were asked to study pornography. And they were asked, how do you define it? And one of them said, I forgot who, huh?
0: Potter.
4: Said, you know, you see it. I know it when I see it. <laughs> Not a bad place but to start. I
1: would disagree. Because okay. you're seeing something you don't understand. OK, that seems like fanaticism. That doesn't mean that's what's going on. You don't understand. Robert Pape, Mia, Mia Bloom have done books on suicide bombing that go into great detail explaining what's behind this thing that seems insane to us and fanatical, right? And so this is my problem with fanaticism. It's like, oh, they're fanatics. That's all there is to it. Well, maybe, but if you just assume that, you're not really going to understand what's going on. Where do they see themselves? How could They're human beings like you and me. How could some human being be put in a place where they're doing that? Right. That's the question to ask rather than to just assume or to I, use the term, I agree which is sort you. of what you're saying. I know it when I see it, no, no, right?
4: It's, I know it when I see it, and let's find out what's behind it. So like when Betelheim and Janowitz studied... U.S.
8: soldiers
4: <coughs> returning from World War II to look at prejudice, and they found 44% of U.S. soldiers were prejudiced against blacks and Jews. And they were very stereotyped. Blacks smelled bad, had big genitals, and would rape their wives. And Jews were very smart and would steal the white out of your eyes and take your jobs. That was the. It was fairly stereotypical among the. So they came out a figure 44% prejudice. Like that's scary. But then they. In, they listened to the interviews, which were done on wire recorders, and found that it was 14%. There, there were four groups in the 44%. 14% were what they called hardcore prejudice, who said, "If I could kill them, I would. The only thing that stops me is the law, the reverend, and my wife." It's that 14% that Peter Fonagy recently referred to as malignant prejudice as opposed to what Peter says what we mostly all have is what he calls benign prejudice. So the issue is not prejudice or not, Peter suggests. Are you connecting
6: fanaticism with prejudice? I am. Do you agree
4: with
1: that? Well, again, I'm not going to use the term fanaticism (laughs) myself. I mean, I understand what you're saying and people act like that, but I won't use the term because of the... So let me just give another example from Serbia. I mean, again, the image of the people who did go off to fight... That they were just like these kind of, they were just gung-ho, and they just wanted to go kill people are different. In fact, if you look at the discourse they were responding to, it was very clearly a discourse of injustice. They were convinced, and they were motivated by horrible injustices that they believed that they were being told were being committed against people, women, children, innocent civilians, for no other reason that they're Serbs. So yeah, there's an identity, there's an identification. But it's not just sort of like these people are crazy. They're like There's an understandable motivation that I think any of us could understand if we put it in, that, in those terms. And so, um, again, the, the idea is to understand why people go off and fight wars that, from our perspective, seem like these people are crazy, ancient hatreds, they're killing each other. Actually, if you look at the sort of on-the-ground processes, it's very understandable. You don't have to agree with what they're doing. It is very understandable. And you can't say it's a group against a group. Right. If you have 80% of Serbian guys not wanting to fight, uh, if in Bosnia people are sort of forced to fight and they're sort of like put in situations where there's no choice, something else is going on there. It's not just identity. Identity is obviously the category that you belong to is important, but you know to use Brubaker's terms, groupness is not automatic. Groupness is something that has to be cr- created. And even when there's a high sense of groupness, everyone in that group or in that category is not going to be responding in the same way, uh, and even a majority may not. So. Um, I think the link... So are you saying uh, it, the modern
6: man, the modern us, that we don't like to kill people? I'm not By and to... large, we don't want to kill people. I'm not going to generalize. But then some, some of us or some people uh, become part of some group for whatever reason and then they're willing to do that, take that step. I think step.
1: People, people in general, some people, are willing to kill for things they de- believe deeply in. I mean... You know, if you join the US Army and are willing to do that, then no one, no one questions that.
6: So you're not a fanatic if you're in the US Army and you go out and you kill, that's no, I, part of your job. Right. So then at which point do you become a fanatic? Yeah, I'm not going to use that term. Okay. Sorry.
3: Actually, we should not generalize, but we should explain certain trends. Mm -hmm. There are different trends in society. No society is one trend. There is no such thing. So let me first address the problem of age and uh, adolescence. And second, the problem of cultural differences. There are obviously both age and cultural differences playing to that. And as they overlap in very different ways, they create those specifically active groups. So uh, the problem with individual identity and nationalism are particularly sharp, acute, and cause particularly many problems, as we Americans know probably better than any other people during adolescence. Young adults is precisely the age when severe mental illness is usually diagnosed in this society. But in addition to that, we have now in universities, according to the latest surveys, 25%, it was 20 several years ago, but now 25% of students, which means one in four, of our students who is severely depressed, clinically depressed. This is one of those diseases, right? And hates his own guts. First of all, completely maladjusted, and of course hates the guts of everyone else. Being severely depressed. Can you
4: give me the reference on that I've never Yes, yes, that. I will.
3: Yes, I will give it to you. I don't have it right now, but I will give it yeah. to you. It is a special. Um, it's a college survey. Yes, of to uh, 2012, the latest data. I'll give it to you. Yeah. It is in my book actually the reference. Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> so. So it is at this time indeed when uh, when we have most. Uh, of those problems. Now, what happens in the United States? In the United, we are talking, of course, about a much larger group, again, uh, Kessler's uh, uh, surveys, um, National uh, Institute of Mental Health, the recent uh, that around 50% in American population are somewhat mentally ill. So we're not talking, we're talking about. Those are colossal, horrendous figures. So we are not talking about, mostly, about really severely ill people. We are talking about enormous, millions and millions and millions of our fellow citizens who experience terrible general malaise. Now what happens in the United States? In the United States, which is an individualistic society, I define it as such because of the type of its uh, nationalism. I can go into that. Uh, in this society, really uh, severely ill people who are not taken care of would end like Adam Lanza or, um, or other shooters in schools and in colleges. This happens in our society constantly. It it seems to be a particular American pastime. But in other societies, in other societies, in collectivistic societies, such, for example, as Germany, or as Serbia, or as Russia, they are likely to engage in collective action, not in individual. Excuse me, Russia just had its first school shooting. Oh, it did? Some places oh, look that at that. A, kid, I mean, the, a young man. They, yes, they're yeah. coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: that's and, some, true. and some more countries in Northern Europe are, but <coughs> it's copycat. But. I'm going to mm-hmm. add some but
4: footnotes the- here.
2: Just footnotes right, about right.
4: diagnosis. Diagnosis is a mess in American success, uh, contemporary psychiatry, except since the time of Bloiler, we're pretty good at diagnosing depressive illness, and remain so, and we're good at diagnosing true schizophrenia. That's, those are the two diagnoses that have remained from the time of Bloiler in the Switzerland until here. And, the, and as I recall, I haven't kept up with the epidemiology. The rates are fairly consistent, and oh, no, 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 well, let, no, me, no. let me finish, let but me
6: finish. What, what I don't understand that yeah. uh, I think you're trying to make the point, and I'm still not catching it. If you are saying fanaticism is a consequence of mental illness, or are you making a no. broader point that I'm not catching?
3: Yes. Well, let me, let me start again.
6: No, don't I, start again. No. That's been long.
0: <laughs> no, don't um, start
3: again. I mean, get, is, get, is, get, is, try yeah. to go well,
6: let, to let, the conclusion. Yes,
0: yes. maybe. If I don't have a now. There's a general idea that in a freer society, it's more difficult to form a clear identity.
3: In in general, in a society, in modern society, it's very difficult to form a clear identity. But people with problems with identity in a liberal society such as the United States are going to act on their own. They're going to erupt on their own. Can
1: I interrupt on this? Because the the fact you, you talked about collectivist societies, they act together. So in Serbia, these paramilitary groups often were people like this, not only, but people like that. But they weren't just acting on their own. They were brought together right. by particular people in the government who wanted this kind of right. people to be willing to do this kind it of work. Exactly. Yes. It, was,
5: it was organized. So I it. That, and then, Dar-
1: I mean, you, you interviewed. I've
5: I mean, interviewed a lot of those people, yeah. but I've also, I mean, I think what, what I'm interested in about what you know, everybody's saying is, and especially what Chip was talking about, how, I mean, I don't know that much about Serbia, more, more about Bosnia, but why was there, I mean, I see it as they were nationalists. I'm not talking about fanaticism, whatever. I mean, that to me is much more relevant to the work that I think the three of us are doing. Um, but why, and you talked about images, how did the people resist those horrible images and all of the propaganda that they were throwing out, saying they were killing, you know, your neighbors, you're going to be killed. In your... it would happen in Rwanda too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they in Rwanda they were saying, you know, your neighbors going to come and stab you in the back. I mean, that's how they got a lot of the Hutus to, you know. Uh, kill each other, because they were scared, and it was a propaganda. So and it, it did they create say, this political... Why were they saying
6: that, the people who were saying that? Why there was were they radio, saying that?
5: They were, why were they saying that? They were saying that because they wanted them to get into, you know, pick up arms and kill the other. They For didn't what, like the other. What was the game? Power. It's so all, of were, it's all, were all were about power.
1: By, they were in power. The, France and the United States was pressuring them to have elections, which they would have lost
5: and they were you know, a piece to simplify it, and this right. is
1: a way to sort of say, you know, you know to shift the focus. But it's
5: really yeah. about exploiting the identity.
1: Yeah.
5: I mean, and and what I'm interested in, what you were saying was, how I mean, this large number of Serbians, you know, in Serbia resisted those negative well, stereotypes to, I mean, and the propaganda. If you think
1: about what Leah was saying, I mean, some people are going to be more apt to be really motivated by those kinds of images and not question them because of their own personal issues. Other people were very skeptical of them and didn't, didn't believe what the government, and in fact, we can say the majority of young guys who were, being, who were being called up, A, had their own lives, just like no one wants to go and give up your girlfriend and your VCR and your, you know. And their jobs. Jobs, if you had one, but still, yeah. to go off, especially if you're skeptical. Um, and so I haven't seen any actual study of, um, um, well, actually, there is someone who she hasn't published yet, but she did interviews with volunteers, that is, guys who volunteered to go fight, and resistors, the, the draft dodgers. Uh, and she, she did a really interesting study of that. But, but I think Leah that
5: would say that those ones that were doing those were mentally ill. So, I mean, were you... Would you say that? From what I gather from them, maybe I'm completely off. There's a lot of mental illness in some of those people that have went off and, I mean, most of well, them well, are. What I'm
3: saying, look, let, right? let's look That's at right. it from the other point of view, right? If we have 20%, which is an enormous amount, by the way, the rates, they increase com- continuously. They stopped in England, but not in this country. Uh, so um, if we are talking about 20% of ill people, we have 80% who are well. We have 80% who are well. A person, I remember um, an example from one of I want to interrupt you for
5: two seconds. We're talking about, so the work that we're talking about is why people do these things in conflict and violence. So is is that, and I'm just trying, I'm not to be rude, but just to bring it back to what discussion, what Freud and Einstein were saying about violence, would you say, and other people agree, that those people that do extreme violence have a mental illness? That are not, you know, not exhibiting pro-social behavior. And I'm, you know, I throw it out to the, the group.
3: Well, I remember that very famous nationalist, Russian nationalist, Karamzin, from the very beginning, who said very, very good thing. A person who is happy about himself would find good things everywhere. People who have a stable and satisfactory individual identity would not participate in those actions. There are many such people. However, in our society, if, Eichmann,
4: for instance, oh my
3: agree, goodness, I don't, don't tell,
9: don't,
3: don't even start with Eichmann. When you, when, when you read his uh, documents, you see how absolutely mad he was.
5: Okay, so let's go on to a lower level. But I
1: wonder if we could get back to, it, at yeah. least yeah. she didn't get to answer a question, because here you have cases where yeah. it seems like it's the same, but very different outcomes.
2: Well, I guess um, we're talk- you're asking about violence, but we could also ask a little bit, broaden the question, actually the way it was posed here to us, which is when do people join groups? that have a common sense of identity? And then when does that group maybe become fanatical? Or when does, forget fanatical, but maybe become violent? Yeah. And um, well, I think that the way, just like earlier, we were talking about how the label of fanaticism is maybe not so helpful in allowing us to understand human behavior, uh, I think often the label of ethnic group or even group is not so helpful in under, helping us to understand people's behavior, especially with regard to uh, supporting nationalism or supporting what's being called in our society ethnic violence. Um, and that, there are many reasons for that. So we were starting to talk about that before. What are, when you asked what are some of the reasons? I mean at, at a most basic level in Yugoslavia, you could say, first of all, Serbs or Croats or Bosnians had multiple identities. This is the basic point that people are familiar with. People have multiple identities: young man, you, know, husband, father. Identities, um, um, regional identities, urban identities, identities as a professional, identities as a communist or an incipient Democrat, and whether one of those or another of those is going to be the one that informs their political behavior is an open question. But now that there's been violence there, we tend to look at it as a place where ethnic identities are always the paramount identity. And that move obscures more than it reveals because we tend to think, well, people there are members of... Ethnic groups, and that's how they condition all of their uh, political and social behavior. When it's not it wasn't Contextual. the case before Contextual. the war, Contextual. and isn't the case yeah isn't isn't the case after the war. So that's one kind of simple way of thinking about how um, ethnic group label can impede our understanding of why there's going to be violence in one place or another. So uh, like Chip's work has, I'm not going to describe <laughs> your work, but you know basically tried to show why. The ethnic identity came to the fore, or how, um, in some ways, the the um, understandings of the past were brought into the present by political entrepreneurs and political leaders in order to mobilize people to support, to feel like they're part of an ethnic group, and then to support violence.
1: So then, why were there different outcomes in, in Russia?
2: Well, um, good question. It's a question that I spent many years working on for my book, um, and so I studied why do people support nationalist movements in some cases and not in other cases, and I looked at. A bunch of cases you never heard of, a bunch of places you never heard of, because there wasn't violence and there wasn't uh, strong nationalist mobilization. Now, the one people probably heard of is Chechnya, because there was a war that's been labeled an ethnic war or a a nationalist war, because Chechnya wanted to secede. And I compared it to the other um, republics within Russia, um, especially Tatarstan, where I did my research, which was quite nationalist, but then didn't go all the way towards separatism and had decreasing levels of support for the opposition nationalists that were trying to um, create a state, achieve statehood. And then I compared to a bunch of other republics um, that uh, are not on many Americans' radar screen because they had very weak nationalist movements, despite the presence of ethnic entrepreneurs or nationalist leaders in all of these places. And um, it's sort of a long story, but a lot of this has to do with why we first of all might expect there to be nationalist mobilization or support for nationalism. Um, we expected a lot of people expected it in Yugoslavia because of what had happened in the past there, and the the, the kind of um, how can I say the um, coming and going of, of of politically relevant ethnic identities in modern history in that region of the world, um, and in the Soviet Union. I mean, in Russia we might have expected it because we just saw the Soviet Union collapse along ethnic lines, in part because the Soviet state actually unintentionally reinforced certain kinds of uh, national or ethnic identities, and in a way um, told people that certain territories belonged to them, and suggested that if, um, you know, if political conditions would allow it, meaning a weaker authoritarian center, then there could be a chance for nationalities, Ukrainians, um, you know, Kazakhs, uh, Estonians, to get their own state. So it was a big fear in the early um, years of Russia that some of the ethnic groups in Russia would do the same thing. Uh, and I think that, or the thing I argue, which is probably not so popular among in common understandings of nationalism, because people see nationalism everywhere, support for nationalism everywhere, support for the idea of a nation-state. And the idea of a nation-state, as Leah described, is so powerful in the modern times. That's why you have all these nationalist movements. But actually, to get people to support nationalism when it might mean um, risk to themselves could mean death, right, could mean war, or it could mean something lesser than that, like losing your job or just <laughs> coming out on the wrong side of a political competition and supporting the wrong horse. Um, it's actually harder for, harder for nationalist entrepreneurs or politicians to mobilize people behind nationalism than I think it is commonly understood. And uh, several reasons for this have to do with the fact that One, people have multiple identities. They have multiple political identities. They think about things in different ways. And so to get people to support nationalism, it's a very strong idea that, one, we are a group. This is the, we are a national group. This is the main group that should matter to you. And two, this group needs to have its own state and needs to fight for its own independent state. So it's not easy. It's not like saying, you know, would you like to join a political party? It's a strong commitment. So to make people perceive their national identity as paramount compared to all of their other identities or as the way in which they should interpret all of their experiences is not necessarily an easy thing. And nationalist entrepreneurs can't just appear, I think, and say, you know what? You are um, Tatar. or you are Chechen and therefore you should support a nationalist state. Now for some people, it's they're told a certain story about their history and how they're their glorious statehood was denied, and that makes sense. And for other people, they say, well, no, I'm not just Tatar. I'm not just Chechen. I'm also Russian, or I'm also Soviet, or I'm also um, you know, a professor, or I'm also a worker, and I've got to go to work right now. So I'm don't, sorry. I don't have time to go to your demonstration. Sort of daily choices like that make it a lot harder. So I think nationalist mm-hmm. entrepreneurs have to introduce a whole way of dividing up the population that exists into categories and diminishing other identities and helping people perceive information in ethnified terms.
1: And if I can add here, violence is a really crucial way to do yeah. that. Yeah. So the violence preceded the solidifying of ethnic identities, it didn't follow from it. Sort of the violence and the war is what created that kind of higher sense of groupness.
6: So is nationalism in decline?
2: Well, let's, let's ask Scotland. They're about to have a referendum on. I, would, I wouldn't say it's in decline, but I would say that the it's European difficult. Union. A European Union is not nationalism; it's regionalism. Oh, you mean that the resistance to the European Union? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, those are uh, that's a, a little bit of a different question because those are solidified nation states where people have a citizenship and a strong sense of being a member of a state, and then it's more about modern day interests and what the European gives versus. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the issues that an uh, incipient nationalist movement is trying to um, convince people is the right way to see the world. So in, in places where there wasn't a state and if elites appeared and tried to convince people that there, there should be a state, like among Kurds and in Iran or, or Turkey, it's, it's actually hard. That's my argument. It's, I'm not talking about um, established nation states. It's actually harder than it would seem um, to an outsider to mobilize people. And I, I think OK, so Chip said violence. This is a really critical way in which people can form a sense of groupness. And another um, another thing that violence does is define a group of people as a victim. So defining a group of, of people as a victim is a critical step. And that's a step that needs to happen. So how do you do that? That's often why you see violence, because then you get the state to respond and create victims. And that can help congeal a sense of na- uh, a nationhood. And I think that's what happened in Chechnya. Right? There, there was uh, not so clear that there was Chechen nationalism was strong before the Russians invaded, but it's not so clear that it would have lasted or that there would have been sustained support for a nationalist state in Chechnya when the leader of that state was a terrible authoritarian leader. But then Russian army comes in and starts killing you because you're a Chechen. and Suddenly, right. that becomes your most yeah. important identity, and you feel a sense of
9: yeah. bonding Injustice.
2: to other Chechens, and, and it really created a very strong support for nationalism. So, th- so then we can just think about other ways that victimhood is created. And, and in my book, I talk about uh, a lot of the ways that entrepreneurs talk about the creation of victimhood is is through uh, whether people are prevented from fulfilling their life in a way that is uh, meaningful to them, like getting a good job, having their children get good jobs, having high status vis-a-vis other groups in their society. And so when when an entrepreneur can come in and place blame on the central state or on the ethnic other in the state for Blocking people's oh, life yeah. chances or um, denying them good jobs or denying them the best apartments, these are the kinds of right. rhetorics that were around in Russia, that went uh, part of the way, uh, a long way, I argue, toward um, fomenting support for, or, or creating a sense of groupness, ethnic groupness, and fomenting support for nationalism.
6: Yeah. What about you know, injustice?
2: That is an injustice. It's a a personal and an injustice that's framed by the leader as an ethnic injustice. Because you are told, look, you can't get a good education. You can't get that education. You can't get that professional job. You can't get that white-collar job because you're an ethnic minority. And to the degree that that uh, message is convincing it 's powerful right it, it, it yeah. could be true mm-hmm. it might not be true yeah. it but what's important the is when people start to believe that it's true and perceive that it's true and it can create a sense of um, um, victimhood and a sense of groupness mm-hmm. that can then be mobilized by political leaders in support of well now look at how our group has been victimized if we had our own state here 's the solution we have our own state we won't be a victim anymore we can we can get the best jobs or we can get the you know, you know the best department so we can um, remove ourselves from f- years of oppression from the ethnic other. And in that way, it's, it's really critical then to get a state. But is that always an easy message to sell? I, I think not. Uh, and it's not always clear what the message should be. And nationalist entrepreneurs and politicians aren't geniuses. Some of them may be. Some of them are better politicians than others, but they're not necessarily always aware about which message is going to take root. They don't exactly know how to frame it. They're not always strategic about it because they may be a true believer in you know, nationalist ideas, and they um, may just go out there and talk about you know, the, what it meant to be an oppressed member of the nation three centuries ago and that may appeal to some intellectuals, but it's not going to appeal to high schoolers or college kids, and so they're not going to support nationalism. I just think there's a lot of roots to nationalism and a lot of roots away from nationalism. And political entrepreneurs have their work cut out for them to try to find the, the right message and, and to try to uh, um, work with people in a society that has certain kinds of identities and other ones that might oppose um, those identities. And, and in modern societies, you know, it's. A, I think it's a harder sell than it than it might have been in an agrarian or in a, a kind of society that's transitioning to, or like transitioning that. to monitor, modernity. Yeah.
6: So in about five ten minutes, I'm going to ask the audience for questions. So this is your last chance to put your ideas out if you haven't yet.
1: No, you haven't.
5: What? <laughs> what well, you know, as I said before, I mean. I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, I work in more agrarian, I mean, Rwanda is an agrarian society. Yeah. So it's much more, it was much more, it was easier for them to be manipulated. It was easier for them to get the word out. I mean, they had lots of ways to manipulate them to have them rise up as a group. You know, the Hutus really.
10: What kind of
2: ways?
5: Radio, prop, lots and lots uh, of propaganda. Tools. Tools, yeah, tons. And and as I said before, like in in, in in Serbia and in Bosnia, they thought they were gonna be killed. And so I mean, my question is always, you know, that group identity sort of changed to be, you know, they were neighbors. They celebrated together the the Muslims and the and the Serbs in you know Bosnia celebrated they were lived next door to each other and you know one one um, of the rescuers that I um, interviewed in, Bo- in, in Wanda said you know we were one minute you know you're a human being and the next minute you're a cockroach it's the same thing as in you know so to make them subhuman um, they were really good at that in Germany and in Bosnia and in um, Rwanda, They were really, really great propagandists in doing that. But, you know, why did the, one, the neighbors say, you know, they still are human beings. And how can you, how can one day one be a human being and the next day they're not? And so those are the kind of people you really want to look at when you're talking about, let's not use the word fanaticism, but when they're going to co- commit, you know, this antisocial Kind of identity instead of pro-social identity, and and that I think is really important to look at. And there's lots of examples in every society that have these you know sort of nationalist, violent, mm-hmm. um, cultures that had happened in in conflict.
1: And just to pick up on that, I think the information sources is crucial. So again, if you look at the micro level in Bosnia. Um, what was used were social networks, informal social networks, uh, fictive kinship groups, bus drivers who had who knew people all along their routes, and that was the, that was the that was sort of how information flowed into the society. So you're listening to people who you know and you kind of trust, and you hear, hey, there's a list that the Muslims have made of all the Serbs who are going to be killed in this town. And it's like, that's insane. They would never do that. But you're hearing it from people that you kind of trust because they're part of your social network. Right. And that's when doubt comes in and fear. And if you're gonna, are you going to risk it, right? So it's a very complex process. Again, it's not this simplistic, you push a button and everyone starts foaming. It's a very sophisticated, actually, social process on the ground that, that leads to these kinds of communities that, that come apart. And then the violence comes in with paramilitary groups Uh, And then in terms of who commits violence, I mean, a lot of what's going on is personal grudges. Let's say I hate you because you stole my girlfriend when I was in high school and you just happen to be a Muslim and I'm a Serb. And now it's open game on all Muslims. I can take out my personal. A lot of it is personal grudges. uh, A lot of it is resentment, um, you know, and some of it may be sort of national nationalism. But that was not there was definitely not enough nationalism on the ground to explain what happened. Nationalism defined in terms of an attachment to a particular What happened
6: between between Turkey and Armenia, it was apparently whatever was decided was decided centrally, Mm -hmm. but it was carried out uh, in Mm -hmm. territories quite far from the center. Mm -hmm.
1: But so that was but that was, Rwanda, that, was yeah. that was
6: carried
5: out by the government. I mean the Turkish government carried that out it wasn 't i don 't think in, in in Armenia it was paramilitaries it was really no, no, but the local was, it people was the started government fighting. Doing it, yeah. yeah but I think one of the things that happens in these cultures that have had conflict is that especially in the case of Yugoslavia, before the war, before Tito you know put it together, he said we 're one. Yugoslavia, and they never were able to talk about the old grudges that they no, had. I mean, the Serbs. Not well, not the Serbs and the Croats, I mean, they were killing each other. They hated well, each other. Actually,
1: the Serbs and Croats, there was never violence between Serbs and Croats until 1906 under the no. Austro Hungarian.
5: I'm talking about World War II. I'm talking about World War II. So, and, and they did it, in, and they're still doing it they in were Rwanda,
2: all but, but, killing each other all the time. Right, right. and there was say never say a
5: discussion
1: about happened. that. World War II happened, they, there were discussions. Each of the republics learned about the sins of their own nationalists. But I'll also say, in the most ethnically mixed regions of Croatia, there was a huge, very high, 50% intermarriage rate of Serbs against Croats. You don't find that if there's like this festering. So, and for what I, you know, talking to people there, for them, before the war, they're like, that's ancient history. You know, and then I remember talking about the war in Lebanon. Oh, that they really that would never happen here. You know, this is a totally we're in a different place. And yeah, that was history, but that was then. And so the point is, the violence didn't sort of bubble up from people wanting it. It really was central. It was a central project, and they used many mechanisms to sort of tap into the way. Same thing in Rwanda and many of these conflicts that are called ethnic conflicts. You know, the existing relations on the ground is not enough to explain what happened, um, even in places where there are historical grievances. Um,
6: so Leah, you want to say something before we uh-huh. go? F- no?
3: No. I'll leave it all to questions. OK. Mm-hmm.
6: Uh, please come to the.
7: Do um, members of the panel uh, agree with Steven
4: Pinker's results from his latest book that violence has greatly declined over the centuries? And if so, um, how does your research and your various theories
5: account for that?
4: Um, that's a controversial book, and, and from a brilliant man. It reminds me, though, Sally Province, who was an infant researcher at Yale, used to point out that during, before the French Revolution, they used to play football with infants, throwing them from one to the other, breaking their bones. So there may, he may be right about, let's say, um, a lack of caring about the other, but we've gotten so much better at killing people. We're far better at it in terms of numbers than we used to be. We're killing many fewer people. I mean, it's. I mean, at one time, you know, Europe had wars all the time. People were killing each other. A hundred years wars. I mean, as bad as it is now, it's nothing compared to like it was in the past. I, I'm not good at the numbers, but I understand between Mao and Stalin, they did a very fine job in the millions and tens of millions. But I, you know, I would, I don't know Pinkus's numbers.
8: Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: What, when is he saying it started to decline? Uh,
6: from
4: the beginning. It's with, years,
2: it's
0: been with civilization, yeah. I think the 20th century, I think we have kind of an illusion about what the 20th century uh, is, is going to look like from this perspective.
1: But but he's not just talking about wars, right? He's talking about just yes. violence uh, in general. Yeah, he's talking about
7: Regression. But I think it's the, a
1: little early to
7: tell. Yeah.
11: <laughs> this buildup of people. At each other, fanaticism or whatever—is it helped or hindered by social media? Good
5: question. That's a good question.
2: Mm. This is a big debate. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a big debate, and uh, you know, usually the debate in political science is about whether social media is, is helping mobilization. And popular understanding suggests that it did help mobilization or anti-authoritarian mobilization in Egypt. Um, but then others argue not.
1: We could extrapolate from what I just talked about personal information, and if person, mm-hmm. you know, if it were happening now, and there were Facebook and all of these social media, on the one hand, you would have information about what's actually happening mm-hmm. in a place. Well, no, it's not what they're saying. On the other hand, you might be hearing from your friends mm-hmm. about things because it's sort of again that rumor network. So I don't, know. Yeah. I don't think I want the disinformation.
2: So we just had a panel at, at Harriman uh, about. I guess it was about demonstrations and also Ukraine, and um, <coughs> this subject came up a little bit. The idea that, well, rumors can still spread. In fact, social media can help them spread, and rumors may not be productive. And um, But then, a, uh, participants or people who were very well informed about what's going on in Ukraine said, actually, they think Twitter, in particular, is very helpful hmm. in dismissing rumors, because a journalist was there speaking, a Russian journalist, and she said that her friend was inside the ring of fire, or right outside the ring of fire in Ukraine that the demonstrators uh, built. And if a rumor was begun by the state, which the state in many of these places are putting rumors out via Twitter, um, she could just ask her friend who's right there. They could go over and look. So I think this is, assumes a very small geographic area. And then they can all say to each other, oh, they're saying that there's going to be a bomb in, in an hour at this site. But actually, we went and checked, and there's no bomb. And that we can sort of figure out that that Twitter post was from the government. And they're trying to, um, they're trying to make us scared. Uh, so some people, you know, I, I think it's an open question. Some people feel like Twitter can be very useful. Others feel like the, the state... So sell
7: Facebook by Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at my iPhone, and it, it uh, defines a fanatic as a person with an extreme... And, and, and by the way, this definition is throughout the, the Internet here. A person with an extreme and uncritical enthusiasm or zeal, as in religion or politics. And it seems to me that the most important word that you all have mentioned is the word critical, that the lack of a critical approach to anything is what may breed an excessive, irrational zeal, which is another word that hasn't come up. So I want to ask, my question is, um, isn't education, I mean, just as far as curing is concerned, isn't education and critical thinking the greatest goal in order to diffuse? various kinds of whatever fanaticism is, if it's a bad thing, to reduce it. And with a lack of education, it seems to me, or with a continuing and persistent deficiency in education around the world, it's going to be very hard to wipe these things out. Correct? I don't know that I agree with that, Oh, I do.
1: Because you mentioned, I mean, early on, you said, oh, well, you know, in the U.S. we have critical thinking individuals, but places like Russia and Serbia, where it's more collectivist. But in fact, Serbia is an authoritarian society. The education system is not about critical thinking. It definitely wasn't. And yet you have 80% of the guys who refuse to go along. Something else is going on. And in this country and other countries where you have a good education system, there are people who, fortunately, we're not in a situation where I don't think it's going to go to violence, but there are people, nevertheless, who are followers of, I think, uncritical views of things that are could be called nationalism, in particular But Well, wasn't race,
6: so. there some people were killed in Texas or somewhere after the 2011 bombings that people just went and found Muslims and yeah.
5: killed? I mean, There's that, I too. I actually yeah. disagree. I think if you, it's an education in a certain kind to think about what, choices, what right choices you make and what wrong choices you can make. And if you talk about, you know, you're talking about the other and dispelling stereotypes and dispelling, you know... But they
1: didn't have that in Serbia, so how do you explain that so many people refused to go and...
5: I don't know. It might be economics. Was was Serbia in a bad economic situation? Probably not. It was actually. I, I no, have I don't a know. question so anyway, semi related. The point is, yeah. That. But I do. I really do <coughs> think that teaching certain. I think teaching critical mm-hmm. thinking to to people and positive role models, and mm-hmm. pro social behavior, which we don't, is, that, is really important. Well, I don't well, think. I'm it, not against I, that. I know. I'm I th- just questioning I hear, like.
11: Okay. Um, it seems like the basis of fanaticism we've all kind of understood as something where our value system, it has to do with our personal values. And I'm just curious if, if we're thinking then that the whole world, like there's a universal value system that everyone's supposed to be abiding by. Mm-hmm.
4: I want to add something in response to that to the previous question also about critical thinking. Because I do, depending on how one, and I'm thinking of a democratic society, I'm being real parochial. I'm thinking of democratic societies now. Um, and uh, the idea of being able somehow to teach in the academic setting or otherwise how to think autonomously or critically. But there's one more ingredient that I want to add that's recent. Um, Paul Ekman and the Dalai Lama wrote a book a few years back on negative emotions, looking at it from a Western and a Tibetan perspective. And one of the components of that, that Ekman is now coming out with a new book on this alone, was the Dalai Lama's emphasis upon compassion for all sentient beings, all, not just other people, all sentient beings. And the challenge from the Dalai Lama was, to Paul, who is a research psychologist, he says, it is compassion and emotion. And Paul spends much of this book explaining why it's not an emotion and but it can be taught.
5: I agree with that totally. And
4: being able to teach that, whatever that means, and it may change the idea of what teaching is, to be able to experience a sense of feelings for someone else and the other person's suffering not only would be instructive, but they've done several studies in California using that in the school system, teaching teachers um, both meditation and compassion, and they found less um, violence fighting among the kids in those classrooms compared to control classrooms.
11: So the implication is that there's like a universal system of values.
4: Well, that's a dilemma. I, I'm just isn't saying that, that according to... is a little to, bit
11: fanatical in and of itself?
4: Well, <laughs> that's a dilemma, yeah. I don't want to <laughs> like say yes to that. I mean, you know what, what okay, Ekman and the Lama there. says, there's something that can be fundamentally human across cultures that can be right. fundamentally
1: human. If I could come in, I mean, Please. I think every culture s- values human life. The problem isn't so much education, because you could be educated. The problem is, what is the situation in the places where we see think, what is the actual structural situation that people are in, right? What is the economy like? What are their day-to-day lives like? What is going on in terms of the information they're being fed, regardless of how educated they are? You know, if I, I'm as educated as I am, if I heard that someone went and killed my entire family and everyone on my street or something, I would have a reaction, right? right? So my point is, I'm not against education, obviously, and all of this is great, but we can't just reduce it to, oh, people aren't educated. Because if that were true, we wouldn't be able to explain Serbia and, and other not, places right. where it's a, it's a small...
4: I'm, I'm not saying that. And the, and the idea of Betelheim and Janowitz's book is that there's a balance between inner life and social and political laws and regulations. You know, when the Nazis or the Tsar said, we're suspending laws for a while so you can have a pogrom, it doesn't matter what inner life is like, think bad things happen. So mm-hmm. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm just responding that that there's something that we might be able to do. And the word education, when I was in Israel, one of my students said to me, actually it was a soldier, said, you don't understand what we mean by education. Because I said, well, you know, where would you go to school? And he told me school, this and that. And I said, okay, thank you. Now we'll turn to this. I was interviewing. He said, well, I didn't finish my education. There's two different Hebrew words for education, right? It's hadrachah. And he's, his point was that the second word for education is what we would call Development of character. We don't have a good enough word for it. Mm-hmm. And he considered, and a lot of my soldiers considered, a fundamental part of their education, which we don't have in American. I went to public school. We we didn't have an American public school. Developing character. Uh,
1: well, That's it. There is a character education movement, but okay. I don't even want to get into that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that <sounds> like <adorable. laughs>
10: Hi. Um, I'm actually from Pakistan, so um, I just recently moved to the United States to um, pursue my college. Um, so I just wanted to ask something. Um, I've actually seen, I'm going to use the word fanaticism in the most colloquial terms that I can, So, um, I, or rather radicalization, whichever. Um, I've actually seen one of my friends go through it. So um, I was just wondering, isn't do you think fanaticism and nationalism is the same because um, we're right now a couple of days ago our government finally um, conducted an airstrike against the taliban and it's i think it's always been really hard for our government because um, for us we identify with them because of religion because we have the same religion but when they start attacking our constitution, it becomes a nationalistic problem. And since they recently did that, attack our constitution, our government thought it was okay to strike against them and that's nationalism. Is that a good way to counter what we usually call fanaticism? Thank you. By nationalism? I mean, I'm sure you people have studied more about these things. I'm just telling from my personal experience what I've seen.
5: But the question is guess, whether they an should an have had an airstrike. Is an airstrike justified I mean, it, when you have
10: fanatics? Yes, isn't it the same thing? It's, it's oh. not the same thing. Oh, okay. What
3: do you study?
10: What do I say I'm a liberal arts major.
3: Liberal arts major.
10: I study everything.
3: Come to Boston University.
10: <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. <laughs>
3: we'll talk about that. It's, it's not something that you can learn in three seconds.
10: But, I mean, the
1: question is, is this action of, can the action of a state be fanatical? Is that kind of what you're asking?
10: Yeah, pretty much.
1: I don't think most people would use it in that way. But, I mean, then you could also ask, well, what's the difference? Right? Why is the state doing this? The state obviously feels so, it has but interests. But then
10: you can rationalize fanaticism, too, if you, if you Well, it's say. not
1: rationalizing. It's not saying it's okay. It's understanding why it's happening. Right? You can still condemn it and say, this is wrong. But the point is, it's important to understand why it's happening. What are the conditions... Your friend, I had obviously know nothing about your friend, but what what's going on with this person in terms I of their mean, lives?
10: When you said education, she went to the same school as I did. Yeah. we pretty much had the same stimuli, if you could right. say, to through media and everything. But she turned out different than right. I am.
1: And that's why I'm not against education, but I'm, I don't think education is enough because this no, is right. No, it's one yeah, part. It kind of, of what, reads, yeah.
10: what yeah. you. So
1: I guess the, I wouldn't. I understand what you're saying about fanatical, but I. I the reason I don't like the word is because it just that's it, fanatic, end of story. They just sort of went off the deep end. and s- There might be other things going on. Some degree so can of mental health helps. Yeah. S- states sorry? can go off the deep Some end too. right? Some degree
6: of mental health mm-hmm. helps. <laughs> Thank you.
10: Thank
6: you.
8: you know, I've enjoyed the discussion, but my head spins with the contradictions, and depending what data set you draw from, you come to at least the divergent Uh, position. So uh, I'm very, very taken with the idea of reflective functioning and how it affects fanaticism, but does it cause fanaticism or is it the other way around? Is there a breakdown? Um, uh, uh, Thomas Kohut just wrote a book called The German Generation in which he brings to it a lot of his uh, father's (laughs) legacy. And he talks about uh, this generation before World War II that came out of World War I. And he asked the question, he, now these are interviews um, post-World War II, and he asked what enabled them to do, uh, and not surprisingly, given his background, he says, well, it was loss of empathy. Um, these soldiers could not imagine being in the shoes of uh, or themselves being uh, the people they they persecuted, so then what causes this loss of empathy? Um, and, and that becomes: is it uh, a psychopathic leader? Um, the suggestion of the nationalistic entrepreneur. That's, there's a lot of evidence for that: Mussolini, you know, Hitler, uh, Mao, Stalin. You know just go, go down the list, but then there's contradictory. Supposition, at least as I read it, uh, on uh, Timothy Snyder, and Neil Ferguson, talking about um, the worst atrocities occurring in the context of a breakdown of authority. Um, uh, I'm thinking about uh, the idea. I, he- I heard this wonderful idea about ten years ago that I, I I've, Sorry, I've never. I've heard since, or replicated, just or repeated. <laughs> this idea, the term that I heard was, it, actually to give credit, it was a professor of globalization at Yale named Arpad, Arpad Apogee. I can't get his last name. He used this term, um, predatory identity, suggesting the kind of person who cannot tolerate the existence of another, and therefore had to use violence to destroy the other. And I, I just, uh, uh, I, you know, I was just so taken by that idea, but I haven't seen much develop out of it. In contrast, um, uh, um, Eddie Cohen, uh, who was a major in the IDF, in the mental health brigade, treated um, uh, I- Israeli soldiers. And the question is was their breakdown a function of seeing and identifying? with the humanness of, um, of the Palestinians uh, they were fighting, or was it the other way around? So I, th- I think we have such a confluence of contradictions here that, uh, I, I, that I think the only way out of it is to, is to, try, is to do what, what you're doing, which is to stay with the data and generate more and more data sets And try to draw from it um, meaningful explanations. And I know the ones kind of my identity kind of makes me gravitate toward, but and and, which I become passionate about. But that makes me suspect them all the more.
7: Thank you.
1: Can I just I could just make a comment on? uh, Yes, sure. I want to make it clear that you know if you look at the conflicts we've been talking about, it's not because the leaders are crazy and just doing things. I'm not saying that they're totally mentally healthy either, but. In all of these situations, you have structural situations. There's not just one person like Milosevic. There's a whole structure in place that's being threatened by changes. Uh, and my argument is a lot of the violence is used to demobilize populations that otherwise would be mobilizing for these changes. Right? Violence is a way, using violence along identity lines, the kinds of things we've been talking about, is a way to stop that kind of mobilization in order for them to restructure themselves, to put themselves in a better situation to simplify. Uh, so, I think, unfortunately, the media here does portray leaders as these crazy psychopaths, and they're doing it just because they're crazy. I'm not saying that they're totally sane, but there's actually very instrumental reasons why these conflicts happen, why they start them, and why they, why they, why they um, construct them that way. So.
6: OK. Hi.
9: Um, first, just a comment um, about benign prejudice which is not always so benign if you're the target of it. So I just wanted to, to throw that in there, but that's not really my question. I work with veterans here a lot, and I talk to them daily, and I ask them a lot about what they do. And I've also learned from working with veterans and reading about it, um, apparently during World War I and World War Two, when they interviewed soldiers returning, they found that only actually shot to try to kill someone. I mean, that's incredible if that's true, but I got this through some military. So around the time of Vietnam, they decided we had to do something about this. So in fact, the military is very ahead of a lot of us in terms of the science they're looking at. They decided they had to change this. So they changed the way they trained our military to dehumanize, uh, objectify the enemy and in fact calling them the enemy. And now we're at the point where 80% of the soldiers will shoot to kill. That's a big change. But also what I was surprised didn't come up. I never heard in all this discussion the word patriotism. And uh, as a New Yorker and also working with veterans, um, I wonder if patriotism is just nationalism that we believe in. Or convince people because that's a lot of what a lot of people signed up for. The military's having more trouble now because now that they don't have 9 11 to manipulate, it's harder to get. But they've learned a lot of other things, like that in poor neighborhoods where connections and brotherhood is missing, they will go in and they, how they, they recruit by which is most likely to get the person to sign up. Mm-hmm. So in poor neighborhoods, they go in and say, we will take care of you. We'll be a good parent for you. In other places, they might say, we're going to give you a job. You know? mm-hmm. Or in some other parts of the country, they might say, you really have to do this for you know, patriotism or whatever. But I just wondered your thoughts about uh, patriotism. That's basically my question. Thank, Thank you. you. Anybody? This is
3: the way um, the word is used in Nationalism, which is ours, is patriotism. Mm-hmm. Nationalism of the others, patriotism of the others is nationalism. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. This is yeah, how it it's is.
2: A, it's, a, it's, a, it's an everyday understanding of the term nationalism. So uh, as academics, we're studying a political phenomenon. And the term patriotism, pride in being a citizen of a state, is something very different. It's a sentiment or a feeling. Or, mm-hmm. It's just a different. It's a it's a different thing, a different category of thing. You could say patriotism is a part of nationalism, but nationalism, in an academic sense, are kind of what what we're talking about is is a more of a, um, a, a first of all either an ideology that there is a nation and that it deserves to have its own state or its political action and mass behavior toward fulfilling that that ideology. So mm-hmm. it's not that we're making a. Um,
1: but I think patriotism is, Part. is national. Our, I mean, it's sort of that connection to a state. And some states are defined well, in particular ethno linguistic ways, what right? What
9: Israelis do is nationalism. And what if you're huh. an Israeli, what the Palestinians do is terror. Like, yeah, the Russian yeah, patriots. That's what you said. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we're <laughs> saying
2: nationalism, or, or wouldn't say we're saying patriotism is bad, and nationalism. I mean that because we are judging uh, nationalism sometimes to be bad, that we would say patriotism is bad. It's a distinction between pride in in uh, being a, a citizen of. Oh, Although the Russian <laughs> patriots, I'm
1: sorry, they're <laughs> nationalists, right? <laughs> patriots. Okay, I have
4: a question to pose, not to be answered. Just to yeah, because we have specifically stuff Leora and Chip. Um, One of the the findings out of the Janowitz and Betelheim study was that in that 14% group that had severe prejudice, um, they spontaneously mentioned, and later on they interviewed them more systematically, many of them, these are all men, of course, many of them reported severe physical abuse by their father in childhood. And they didn't find that in the remaining group. Mm -hmm. So my, my question is, have other people looked at that systematically uh, since then this is a study back in the 40s and 50s people, I just... see, please
5: I see I don't These yes, are Yeah that's are not, not my that's right, not, really. not my work the work that I do is why people don't do those kinds right. of acts yeah. and and a lot of it is familiar like your family has had those values and you would have done the saving you know active saving because your family's done it Um, Religious reasons, it's not, you know, as base as, um, you know, because you've been beaten up or stuff like that, but but it's also, it it really is, you know, there's several reasons. You're a risk taker. You're morally, you're religious. Like there's a great example of a, in the Holocaust of a nun who was completely anti-Semitic. I don't know if you know this story. Hated, hated, hated Jews, but because she was so religious, she saved many, many people, many Jewish people, because it was against her religion. And so, I mean, that's a really good case of showing how you could be prejudiced, but sort of overcome it for religious reasons. And, you know, the other reasons, so the risk takers, um, moral, religious, and, you know, families have done those you know, examples of, you know, positive post social behaviors. So I don't know about that at all. You might be able to answer I, it. I
1: mean, not so much as rescuers, but people who refuse to go along. I haven't actually, I'm not really aware of any studies like that. No, I'm the other side.
4: You know
7: like 14% you know
4: of the guys who were the most prejudiced right, right. were I, ready to act on it.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't know of uh, any says. studies that go into that depth about okay. their personal backgrounds. Yeah.
6: Uh, OK, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, sorry.
2: I just brought up. I was wondering if I should make the point. Um, that I feel that we didn't discuss the first um, unit that we are exposed to, which is our family unit, and if your parents are to teach you compassion, and cooperation, and a healthy self-esteem, that you may be much less likely to get swept away with fanaticism yes. and behaviors that can that's, hurt other people in the that's future. That's right. That's what. So thank that's our first unit.
5: Thank yeah, you. I, mean that, to... actually, you I mean that is actually. I mean that's actually true. I mean. One of the rescuers that I interviewed was a, an Italian guy who had saved some children. And he never, ever told his family, because his, his brother was in a, in a prisoner of war and he would have been able to get him out. And he was 92 when we interviewed him. He just The children found him finally through Yad Vashem. And he, when he talked about it, he said, after we did the interview, actually, he said, you know, I have to tell you this, that I never told anyone in my family but I found out recently that my sister saved um, our Jewish dentist. So it was definitely there was many many examples of people saving because their family had positive role models, and that is really what you would teach. You would teach about positive role models, and you know that you can do this behavior without looking at the really horrible, horrific kind of behavior. I think, and that's pretty, you know easy to teach. It's not easy, but that's what we teach. One of the
11: things that I was wondering
5: was, do you think that there is
11: a physiological, neurological propensity that we can be born with? Um, And I'm not saying nature versus nurture type of thing, but um, based on Philip Zimbardo's Stanford prison experiment and how he assigned just neutral, just, you know, Took kids from the campus and put them in a situation and assigned certain ones to be guards and certain ones to be prisoners. And some of the guards became fanatical in the very worst, worst sense. And they weren't given any more prodding, they weren't given any more um, incentive than anybody else, but they got much more swept up into it. And um, I'm just wondering if, I mean, It is an identity, it's an identity with being a guard, and and that's, you know, same thing as as a nationalism, or it's what they identified with, zealously. So I was wondering, do you think that there is, beside the things that you were talking about, which are very interesting factors and motivators, do you think that there is something maybe genetic, something neurological, that would um, make one person more prone to hop on that bandwagon or to be more malleable to that? That would be my question. The other, just not a question, but I think that you're giving fanaticism, that word, just the word, a very bad rap, because when you think of a Nelson Mandela, he was a fanatic. He was, I think. That's just my opinion, and I don't,
6: Leo, Leo teacher, so I don't think. Leo well, said she's a fanatic teacher. I don't think. I mean, but it you said
11: like that mental illness, and you know all that. And no. I just wanted to say, I can think of, I mean, back to Galileo, you know, heliocentric in universe. He was a fanatic about that. So I think that there can be good. It's not an oxymoron. I think you can have a good fanatic. But anyway, my question just was, Thank do you, you think that there is something that we can be born with, to be hardwired, to become fanatical? That's
6: my question. You are the MD. You're really? <laughs> yeah, you
4: got, you're the MD. Look, you're, this is too complex a question, except a simple answer. Okay. Interesting things about humans usually aren't explained by a single gene. And a slap upside the head of a kid is very persuasive, whatever their genetic background.
6: Thank you. <laughs>